The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. Here with Peter Krauss, CEO of Aperture Investors in New York. Peter, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You have some contrarian views here on interest rates, on the economy, and on bond markets. And big picture economy, of course, we're all talking about a soft landing to the point where this has pretty much become the base case. And you're on board to an extent, but maybe less so for the long term. So I'll let you talk about this. Tell us your views on the economy and the potential soft landing. So I think the soft landing concept, which is, of course, the objective of the Fed and is, of course, the expectation and hope for every investor, is something that we are likely to see in the next month or so, maybe even two months. But it's very transitional. I don't actually believe the soft landing can eliminate the impact of a significant growth slowdown. I'm not going to use the recession word because the recession is a highly technical term as defined by some group of economists who decide that the period you've been through is a recession or not a recession. But significant growth slowdown is effectively what a recession is. And it, it could be negative growth or it could just be significantly negative second derivative changes. Both are you know, the same sort of thing. So I do think that we are going to see that significant negative growth second derivative. I think that's going to occur. And I think it is in the process of occurring. So right now we're measuring this and saying employment is still pretty positive. We see consumers continuing to buy. We see jobs being created, although at a much lower rate. But we're also seeing signs of growing 
credit concerns, of higher credit card risks and reserves, of bank stress, not relative to liquidity, but relative to credit losses. And that's because the Fed is very aggressively raised rates and continuing to raise rates. Even if it doesn't take rates up in the next few time periods, it's still at a relatively high level. So I think what will happen is that that financial constraint that's caused by the Fed increasing interest rates and has been lessened significantly by the stock market rising, which is a liquidity provider, not a liquidity you know, remover, that that's gonna stop. And the Fed's gonna continue to take liquidity out. The Treasury's gonna sell lots of securities at the long end of the yield curve and take more liquidity out of the system. And that's gonna conspire to create this much faster slowdown in growth. And I think that happens by the end of the year. Okay. So it sounds like you're, you didn't say this, but do you think there's a chance the Fed could rake more stuff? We had the bank crisis in the spring, seems to have been resolved, but that was one of the things people have pointed to with these higher interest rates. Do you think there's potentially other things like that looming? Break versus eliminate the weaker credits in the system. So I don't think they're going to break more stuff. I think what broke is probably the limit of what is going to break. What actually occurred in uh, March and April was a liquidity crisis on selected bank balance sheets. Liquidity crises are acute, deep, fast. So I think most of that has occurred because if it was gonna occur, it, it would have. I think the credit issue though, is a much slower, longer, not necessarily more painful, but painful process. And what creates the credit risk is two things. One, lower incomes or revenues on the part of companies or individuals. So inability to pay the interest, which is much higher, or more likely inability to refinance. And it's, I think the refinancing issue that is going to be the biggest problem. And that's because interest rates are literally 400 basis points higher. And I, I think that companies are not gonna be able to, all companies are not gonna be able to easily refinance themselves. And that's gonna cause restructurings and that's gonna cause some, some credit losses and that's gonna cause bank stress and that's gonna reduce bank lending and that's gonna make the feds be a little bit tougher on bank reserves and all of that's gonna to conspire to continue to slow down the economy. And that's gonna create a lower uh, revenue growth and that's gonna create more challenges in the credit complex. So that is what I expect will happen from the Fed. And I think the Fed would normally counteract that by taking rates down, but can't because inflation hasn't been defeated. And that's why I say it's hard to have a soft landing, be persistent, because all of these other actions are at work and they have to play themselves out. And it's very difficult for them to play themselves out without really having a significant slowdown in growth. Okay. Now you mentioned inflation and this has come down. It's not yet at the Fed's target rate of 
but it's pretty close. It's, you know, three and so, and, and lessening further, we get a fresh reading tomorrow, but do you think, um, do you think that doesn't give the Fed leeway to cut rates? No, I, I think the Fed doesn't look at the uh, headline rates. You know, they, they look at the core rates, which I think are three, nine or 4%. I don't think we have experienced yet the stickiness of inflation. You have to be probably older than 50, maybe 60, to have lived through a period of inflation which was sticky, where it took you know four years to basically bring inflation down to low numbers. We've been fighting inflation for 18 months. It's possible, and the market believes this, it's possible that the speed at which we've seen inflation decrease from, you know, call it 6% or higher to we'll call it 4% will continue, but it stands to reason that as you get closer to the target, the speed at which inflation drops slows. Mm. And therefore I think by extension, looking at the speed that has actually occurred and saying, well, that's gonna continue at the same rate is probably optimistic. Okay. And what about, well, this doesn't really leave bond, bonds in a very great position, uh, all this stuff, because you kind of need the Fed to cut rates for bonds to be attractive. Uh, what do you make of all that? Well, I think that's an excellent point, um, quite frankly. I think that part of the challenge in the bond complex today is twofold. One is what's going to happen to credit spreads? And two, what's going to happen to duration, meaning, you know, as rates go up. So I, I think people, investors have crowded into two parts of the fixed income market, double Bs. So call it the high yield space, not triple Cs or some selected triple Cs that you would own, but triple, double Bs are very tight and investment grade uh, because people are searching for safety and investment grade people have some duration. So their duration is probably or using years instead of duration years maturities probably the middle you know five to seven year uh, final maturities so if if the yield curve what happens to the yield curve here is obviously going to have a significant effect on those positions right now the carry that's being earned in those trades is attractive that's why people are doing it but with carry trades you always have significant risk to shifts in the yield curve or credit losses. And I think that if you don't, if you, if you don't own very short securities that are highly rated, i.e. you've got a lot of liquidity and you're getting less, you'd be getting less carry than you would in the other two ideas, then you have your long duration and your long credit, which means that if there's a shift in duration, and credit spreads, meaning they get wider credit spreads and duration, the yield curve steepens, then that's gonna be painful for you. Mm. And even if the yield curve goes down, the long end goes down because we have a significant growth slide on, or even a recession, that's not gonna be offset by the credit spread widening. That's gonna be worse for you. You won't get, you won't get a net positive the credit spread widening will be offset to some extent by lower interest rates, but not enough. Mm -hmm. So that carry trade is a risky trade, but mm -hmm. that's where all the money is sitting. Yeah. 
And the yield curve has been inverted for a while, obviously. Um, you know, several instruments, uh, short-term yields much higher than long-term. Do you think that resolves itself in any way? Sure, that does. Uh, because it's not a natural position for the yield curve to be in. And it's there because the Fed is driving interest rates up on the part of the yield curve it can control, which is the short end. And the long end is reflecting investors' expectations about inflation. So what I, that's why I was focusing on what is the long-term expectation for inflation. If the long-term expectation for inflation is 2%, and that turns out to be accurate, then the long part of the curve will stay pretty much where it is. You know, it's at four. If long-term inflation is two, two and a half, real rates are one and a half, two, that's, that's reasonable. And then what happens is the yield curve pivots on the, on the long point and the short end comes down and that's how it steepens. If the long-term inflation rate is higher than two, so call it two and a half or three, then that 10-year rate has to go up a little, maybe 50 basis points. And then the yield curve doesn't just pivot, it actually goes up and goes down at the same time. So I, I think it's one of those two things. Uh, mind you, it's not a great answer to have the long end of the curve actually rally in rates, because that probably means we have a recession right. and credit spreads are a lot worse. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what curious, what types of, uh, you know, catalysts are you looking for here? You said that we probably have, and to your point, timing is everything. Um, and you said that we probably have a couple months left of this, you know, soft landing scenario before we hit trouble. Uh, what kind of stuff are you looking at? You mentioned consumer, you mentioned employment. Is there anything else? Yeah. So I think, uh, let's talk about equities and let's talk about debt. You know, yeah. I think, uh, you know, Investors would say that the debt markets usually are preceding the equity markets. That's a little like, well, if you talk to a credit guy, that's what they'll say. If you talk to an equity person, they'll say the opposite. Right. <laughs> so there's no, uh, there's no conventional wisdom on that that's consistent over time. I think that the two things that are challenging in the market is what will happen to credit spreads as the economy slows down and how will equity investors look through that or not in evaluating how much risk they want to put on in the equity market? Okay. So on the first point, I think credit spreads are likely to widen as we move into this slowing and hit refinancing cycles. And we certainly see that in real estate. And commercial real estate is where there is the most stress right now. It's the most palpable. There are clear examples of large borrowers, well-known borrowers, literally sending the keys into the, to the lender. That is unusual when that happens. So I continue to think that that will occur. That's reflecting an idiosyncratic risk in commercial real estate, in office space due to COVID, change in work habits, and probably the overbuilding in some cities, although the overbuilding is not great, but it's enough to actually pressure the marketplace. So I, I think that's happening now and you see spreads reacting now and you see 
need for reserves on bank balance sheets actually acting now. And I, I think there was an article today that talked about bank reserves being elevated to a point that they hadn't seen in three years. Mm. So that's happening as we're talking. And that's part of the reason why banks are under pressure. It's part of the reason why Moody's is downgrading banks. That's occurring as we speak. The corporate side of that hasn't happened yet because inflation caused nominal growth and nominal growth caused prices to go up and revenues to go up, even if unit volume wasn't increasing much, that created more revenues, that created more operating earnings, that covered the increase in interest rates, and therefore you didn't see credit spreads act that badly, except for the bank crisis in which they blew out for 18, uh, excuse me, 45 days and then came back. So now we're looking at, well, what happens to credit when you start to hit refinancing cycles and you can't refinance 100% of the credit? And that's the next event that will cause credit spreads to actually expand. Mm -hmm. how, how fast they will expand ahead of that without those events occurring? Generally, those events have to actually happen before the spreads actually start to react fully. Now the equity market. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. So everybody knows the equity market has gone up from the bottom of, of October 22. This year, the S&P's up 17, the NASDAQ's up 33. That those are big numbers, but they are off of a low base. So let's not forget that point. The equity market is still not back to where it was at its peak, which is 4,800. So what do we make of it? It's also very, uh, very narrow. We, we know that there are seven companies that are driving a large part of that valuation. And there's some idiosyncratic elements to that. We also know that AI has played a significant part in the valuation. So what happens now? Do the rest, does the rest of the market catch up? <clears throat> or do the leaders that have taken the market up as much as it has shrink back down to where the rest of the market is? That is a conundrum. And frankly, that's challenging to figure out. Right. What I think is likely to happen is we're going to see some volatility here. Market's going to go up and down, you know, until we get into late fall, early winter. And at that point, <clears throat> I would expect the Fed's interest rate policy to have to start to have an effect on the things I've been talking about: refinancing, slowing economy be more clear, unemployment rising. And then I think the equity market will look through that to 24, 25 and start to say, wow, on a sequential basis, I'm gonna see some big increases here. Mm -hmm. And consumers are likely to see, the consumer companies are likely to see the first effect of that, 
because the consumer companies already contracted significantly in 22 and in 23. Mm -hmm. So we're likely to see expansion in 24 and 25 on that second derivative. So I think consumer companies are going to be the leaders out of this cycle. Oh, really? Okay. So they're, they're going to bounce as early as next year. Perhaps even later this year, mm -hmm. because the equity market will look ahead. Okay. Now, where the consumer is concerned, the, the consumer has been stubbornly persistent here throughout the last couple of years. And has, due to has, COVID, due, yeah. to, due to transfer payments, due to student loan, um, right. you know, cessation. Now student loans, people are paying them. Right, yeah. Uh, you also have to remember one really big thing, one really big thing for any homeowner, mm. any homeowner, 90% of which are financed with fixed rate mortgages, they have 30-year mortgages at very low interest rates. So what that means is you're not going to see people sell their house because then they lose the interest rate, but they do have a lot more disposable income. And they're going to use that to upgrade their house. And you're seeing that today in companies that actually service that part of the market. They declined, those companies' equities declined significantly in 22 and in early 23, and now they're recovering. Because hmm. people are actually not selling their house, but putting a new room in, a new deck, a new X, whatever it is. And that, I do think the consumer is going to continue to be persistent there. Okay. Now, the most recent Home Depot earnings actually spoke to the opposite happening a little bit. Now, that's just one company. I think Lowe's might have said the same, but they said that they were seeing fewer big ticket item purchases and if you recall, granted that was already three months no, ago. No, 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 I, I think that's true. But again, I'm talking about what is the what's the equity investor gonna think? So if you're seeing those decreases now, yeah, then you have to look out over time and say, okay, but what do I think is gonna happen in the future? And is that rate of change positive? Because remember, the equity investor is always looking at the differential. They're mm -hmm. not looking at you know what actually happened. Did it go down? It did it to go down more or less than the last quarter. And if it went down in the last quarter and it goes up in this quarter, then I'm, I'm interested because I'm going to see growth. So the fact that Home Depot is reporting weaker sales, that's, that's probably what we'd expect to see. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the one equ uh, equation here, the one part of this whole mix is employment, of course. And if you don't have people employed, then they can't really make in investments in their home or in anything else and, and consumption comes down, blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't sound like you're expecting very much in terms of the employment figures or the unemployment figures, I should say. Well, I think that we're going to see unemployment go up. It's way too low. Yeah. I mean, it's under four. Yeah. I mean, it's easy for us to have an unemployment rate at five. You know, it, until you get to six or seven, you're not in any stress. An unemployment rate between four and five is, you know, you could argue four to four and a half is full employment. You know, five is, you know, slight softness in, you know, in the marketplace. So, and that's a big move. You know, that's a one plus percent increase in the unemployment rate on the nation's uh, worker force. So that's a lot of unemployed people. So I, I expect that that will happen. And I expect that that'll have some negative effect on, on the consumer for sure. But that'll be the end of the cycle. Yeah, okay. And, and remember, employment is a lagging indicator. 
Right. So the market's going to be ahead of that. By the time you see that, the market's going to be up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Peter Krause, very interesting conversation here. I want to take a short break and come back and ask you some more stuff about yourself, about your firm. There are some other topics we haven't talked about yet, including China. That's been in the news. I uh, want to get into that. But let's first take a short break and allow our sponsors to be heard. If you are a premium subscriber, you will not get the break. Do not touch the dial. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. And to become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. And we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details. contrarianpod.substack.com so if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits, including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the Daily Contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. Welcome back, everybody. Here with Peter Krauss, the CEO of Aperture Investors in New York. Peter, this is the segment of the show where we ask our guests to tell us a little bit more about themselves, how they came to this station in their career. More importantly, how they got interested in investing in the first place. I call this the origin story, to borrow Marvel terms. So what is your story and how did you get to where you are that you started Aperture Investors? Take us back and tell us about it. Well, I suspect I'm not dissimilar to many investors. It's been a lifelong interest. As far back as in my early teens, I was interested in the stock market. And in fact, what I was interested in in the stock market was charting stocks. I mean, and when I was, you know, 10 or 11, that was, I'm dating myself in the 60s, uh, you know, there was a, something called Value Line, which was a, a book of uh, tear sheets that described companies. And on the, each tear sheet was 
a chart of the stock. I don't know for how long, whether it was a year or two years, I can't remember. And they would do technical analysis on the chart. Would say, you know, this part of the chart suggests the stock is going to go down. This part of the chart suggests the stock is going to go up. And for some reason, I don't know why, I found that interesting because it was behavioral. And I think that the market is this weighing machine. And over long periods of time, it's very efficient. But over short periods of time, it's inefficient. And so it weighs people's emotions, meaning fear and greed, meaning um, momentum and lack of momentum. And there's all there's lots of technical terms for it today, but ultimately it's the expression of human behavior having an impact on stock prices and the, the actual movement of the stock price over time reflects that weighing process. So as a young kid, I used to chart stocks. I didn't know what I was doing, but <laughs> I was charting the stocks and I enjoyed it. And so I just kept doing it and I just, you know, kept at it over my, you know, my adolescence. And then in college, I was very interested in the stock price movement as well and, and microeconomics. Uh, and then as a career, I started off as an accountant, uh, as a public accountant, because I was interested in numbers as well, which is obvious from the charting. And then I uh, made a, a significant move in my career to go work at Goldman Sachs in 1986. And I was at Goldman Sachs for a long time uh, and ultimately uh, retired from the firm as the head of their investment management division and uh, a member of their senior management team. And I decided I would retire and, and run a public company in the asset management space. And I ran Alliance Bernstein um, for almost uh, 10 years and then retired from there and decided that I still liked stocks. I still liked investing. But I had found over that time period that there were some real maladies in the business. There was a misconception or a misdirect or a misalignment, better said, between the incentives paid to investors and the objective of the investor. And what I learned over 40 years in the financial industry is that Financial investors are very Pavlovian. Hmm. If you pay them to do something, they will do it. And there's no mistaking that. And so you need to be thoughtful about aligning how you compensate somebody because that incentive system drives their behavior and behavior drives their investing and investing drives their returns. So I thought there was little attention paid to that alignment in the industry where people are basically paid whether or not they perform. And even in the higher fee um, segments of the industry, call it the hedge fund industry or the private equity industry, people are still paid a lot to gather assets. Hmm. And they can gather more and more assets and have their alpha shrink and still make more money. And you as the investor didn't hire me as the portfolio manager to do that. Hmm. You gave me your money because you want me to perform, which means beat the index or beat zero or whatever the benchmark is. So I thought the best way to deal with that would be to come up with a different incentive system that actually was focused on incentivizing the manager to actually perform. 
And I felt that if you did that at the manager level, you would also attract the best managers because the best managers know they perform and they want to get paid for that. And so what you need in investing is incentive alignment, the best talent, and the ability to control capacity. Because as assets get bigger, it's always harder to perform. It is a sine qua non, it's a principle, it's like gravity. So you need an incentive system that says to the manager, look, if you take more assets, it may not be financially rewarding for you to do that. So don't take more assets because you'll make more money if you don't. So it's three parts, it's not just a fee, it's not just to get the best manager, it's also control the capacity. And if you have an environment or an incentive structure that does that, I think you can attract the best people, have the best manufacturing facility for alpha and satisfy the client with an objective that's consistent with their aspirations. Okay. So that's why we built Aperture to do that. Now you don't find that, well, a couple of questions here. And I've studied hedge funds for you know most of my career and follow them. But I guess first of all, wouldn't this incentivize excessive risk taking if or the the uh, compensation is based all on returns? Well, <clears throat> you know the funny argument is, <laughs> you say to people, "Well, you're just going to pay me on returns. Don't pay me any management fee." Yeah. And of course, then the answer is, "Well, if you do that, then if you don't perform, how are you going to sustain yourself?" So obviously you have to have some management fee. So then you say, well, that, yeah, but I don't want to pay you that much on performance because that could incentivize you to take risks. So I'll give you more in management fee. Well, where's the sweet spot before you're giving them so much in management fee that they don't take any risk because you don't pay them to take risk. All right. So at the end of the day, you have to hire the manager who ultimately you believe can control their risk, can perform, and will get paid and will make you money. Because... Everybody has to take risk. You can't take risk without, you know, and, 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 and uh, perform and not perform. It's not possible. Right. So what you have to find is a manager that you believe understands how to take risk and how to think about it. Cause the manager doesn't want to blow up. That's not mm -hmm. their, that's not really what they want to do. They want to build a business. They want to do this for the rest of their careers. So they don't want to take a lot of risk and paid a lot of money. And by the way, the more assets you have, the higher the probability is that that does happen. Mm. Because then a manager says, listen, I'm having the best year of my career. I have lots of assets. If I knock the cover off the ball here, I'm done. I can walk away. That's not a good position for the investor to be in. So right. I think there's a, it's a very complex problem. It's not a simple problem. You can't just look mm -hmm. at one piece of it and say, I can solve that. It's a real ecosystem. And you have to understand that ecosystem as an investor to basically find the best place to put your money. Yeah. Do you have, you know, I mean, based on what you just said, this might, you might've already answered this question, but do you have kind of a sweet spot in terms of like management plus carry? Is it like one in 30? Is it 75 and 24? You know. So I think it's different for equities and fixed income. Right. So I think fixed income, the, the sweet spot is between 75 and 150 basis points and 20 and 30 over a benchmark. For equities, I, you can charge less. So you can, you can modulate the performance fee and the base fee. So it's somewhere between 30 basis points to 1% on the management fee and 30% and 20%. We find a lot of people just like one in 20 or 75 and 20. 
I personally, my own personal interest is I think 30 basis points in 30 is I'm happy to pay you if, you if you're making a lot of money. That's good. I'll pay you more. No problem. Don't deny another man his dollar if they're performing. <laughs> but do I really want to pay you 100 basis points to 75 basis points when you're not performing? Not really. Mm -hmm. I prefer to pay 30 because mm -hmm. I have to pay you something to keep the business going. All right, let's switch back to markets here. And uh, China um, has was in the news, uh, you know, the last couple of days. We had some bad uh, trade numbers. We had some somewhat shocking deflation numbers. We had some measures, new measures by the Biden administration to prohibit investing in certain parts of their economy, only private investing, not stocks. You can still buy Chinese stocks. You can still buy ADRs. But um, yeah, and you had some views on the whole China reopening. Uh, do you think, how do you, how do you view that as playing out? So China is an even tougher story because the divergence between what happens in China over the next few months or even year and what happens in China over five years could be dramatically different. Mm -hmm. Because the Chinese are very long-term thinkers or very long-term, have very long-term horizons. Their political cycles are much longer than ours. And so it allows them to have a much longer term focus on what they want to achieve and the time period over which they can achieve it, which is frustrating to investors who tend to think about their timeframes in much shorter cycles. So I think China is a challenging place to invest right now. And what, what, I, what I think we're not going to see in the future is the deflationary cycle of China growing and exporting deflation through productivity gains and higher and higher amounts of production offset by huge buying of commodities. I think that is over. China's reached a point where it, it's, it could impact the marginal price on commodities because it's still a big buyer on the margin. But I think it's, its impact on emerging markets growth is significantly diminished, not because of anything other than it's just gotten big mm -hmm. and you can't move a big thing that fast. I think that's done. <clears throat> I think investors are wary about the government and how the government behaves. And I think the government is not that focused on the international investor. Mm -hmm. I think I, they wouldn't say this, but I think the utility to the government of the, of the international investor investing in China does not appear to be high on their list. And since it's not high on their list, you can't expect that their behavior is gonna be attractive to that cohort. Their behavior is focused on a different cohort, which is internal and it is, may, may not be as easy for us external people to understand. So that's a lot of uncertainty for investors. And I think therefore China is gonna be more challenging as an investment thesis over time. Now, Will that resolve itself? It's very possible. Will I be wrong about the importance of the international investor to the government? Could be. 
They certainly are struggling with how do they restart their economy, which I think also is a function of the last 15 years of growth. So they grew by building buildings and building roads and building bridges and doing infrastructure galore. They never really stimulated their economy the way the US does by creating consumable income for consumers. They may not have the wealth transfer mechanisms. They may not have the, in, the incentives. They just may not have the infrastructure or even the experience to do that. And I, I do think that that's what they need to do going forward. So if I had an optimistic view of China, it would be to figure out where China's stimulus is going to go to restart their economy. And what are the, where are the beneficiaries of that? And I don't think that's the previous cycle. I think that's a new cycle. And what that is, is still unclear. Mm -hmm. Right. But there's a lot of, uh, you know, problems. I mean, a lot of challenges with that. You know, for you have this huge bureaucracy for them to pivot quickly. And they've been talking about the consumer forever, about how yeah. they're building a consumer <laughs> class and blah, blah. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and that's why I think they want to do it. But as I said, I don't think they figured out how to do yeah. it yet. Right. And it's not exactly, I mean, we take it as a for granted, but it, it took us, us meaning the United States, I don't know, you know, 100 years to figure that out or 50 years to figure that out. So you got to expect it's going to take them some time. But, mm. but I think if you're looking for like, okay, but where do I invest? Because you can't just disregard China. You can't just say, look, I'm not investing in China. That, that's, that doesn't make any sense. That's silly. So if you, if you want to be in China, because I think you have to, you have to figure out, well, where are those companies that will ultimately be the beneficiaries of what the government is trying to accomplish? And they talk about consumer, they talk about technology, they talk about AI, they, they will actually invest in those spaces. And that is where the money's gonna go. It's not gonna go in real estate. It's not gonna go in bridges and concrete. It's just not gonna go there. Hmm. Okay, so the commodities, the commodities play is basically because they are the biggest purchaser of, purchaser of commodities, right? So what is that? where does that leave commodities if they're not going well, to Well, China's been the marginal buyer. And so people have gotten used to evaluating what commodities are going to do based on what China does. Well, that may not be all that. I mean, the, the commodity cycle shifts the reasons for price changes over time. Sometimes it's supply-induced. Sometimes it's demand-induced. So today, you know, the oil companies are probably doing poorer than they, you would expect them to do, given their free cash flow. And maybe there's some attractiveness in the oil companies today because oil prices are probably not going to go down much, given the fact that the U.S. has released strategic oil reserves, that the shale production is lower, although as prices go up, it will increase. Uh, given that the Middle East is controlling uh, oil flow and given the war in Ukraine and the constraints on Russia. So, you know, marginal increases in China's demand for fuel will actually have a bigger effect on the oil price. And oil companies, you know, benefit from that immediately. And so that's probably, that's probably it. A reason, an interesting trade. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Okay, cool. 
Is there anything that keeps you up at night, Peter, that, you know, any disaster scenarios, be it geopolitical or environmental or what have you that, um, you know, that, that you're worried about here? I, like everybody else, you know, worries about the obvious. Mm. You know, is the war in Ukraine going to end or get worse? You know, will there be a, a kinetic conflict in the Asia Pacific? That would be a disaster. I, I, don't, I don't really remember a time in my life when there wasn't some risk of those things in the world. Maybe the risks get bigger, maybe the risks get smaller, but you know we've never lived really um, without those risks. And I think that they remain, and I think investors pretty much invest through them unless they become hot. Mm -hmm. And the Ukraine war became hot, and now it's kind of like white noise. It could get hotter, that would change people's investors. It could get colder, that would change people's investors. But what it is today, it's just white noise. And I don't, I don't think it's going to amount to much. If China were to invade Taiwan, which I think is highly unlikely, almost remote, uh, or there were some other conflagration, which is less remote in that part of the world, that obviously would have a acute effect on markets. But you know, I don't expect it to be long lasting. I, I tell you the one scenario that I do worry about which goes back to this longer term inflation expectation problem. If it turns out that inflation is indeed sticky and doesn't really go below three, and investors shift their long-term inflation expectations to three, three and a half, and demand a real rate of interest of 150 basis points, so long the 10 years, four and a half to five, and given the amount of debt that the government has to continue to borrow, not the, not the stock of debt, that's somewhat problematic, but the fact that we run these deficits persistently and we're constantly growing, um, that may not be offset by nominal growth in GDP. And I think that could create a condition where Bonds continue to do poorly. And growth is not that robust. Refinancing risk accelerates. And at some point, we'd have a bigger recession. Mm -hmm. that's, that's sort of real worry. Or potentially stagflation, based on what you're describing. Yes, you would have stagflation, and then you'd have the recession. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what do you, if you had to game it out, model it out, what would you say are the percentages of that versus the other scenario you talked about earlier? I think that that's 25% chance, maybe 30, mm -hmm. that that happens. I think it's um, my main, my 50% probability is that you get this. Um, soft landing evolving into a harder landing, whether it's a recession or not, doesn't really matter, and recovery. And that um, the inflation rate doesn't get stuck at three, it gets stuck at two and a half, and we can manage that, and that works just fine. Hmm. All right. 
All right. It sounds like to not get ahead of ourselves here, but next year we're going to be hearing a lot about this election. Last question. Yes, and in an election year, you know, it, it would be highly unusual for the administration in charge not to spend money. Right. So it's tough to have a recession mm -hmm. in an election year. You know, George Bush had one, George Bush the first, and contributed to his lack of a second term, not the only reason. Um, but it's unusual. So you would expect the administration to find ways to spend. Fiscal spending doesn't really drop. And it's really, you know, 25, 26, where these issues I'm talking about, you know, start to really bite. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, so it sounds like this will likely not happen in a time where it endangers the Biden. No, the credit, the credit spread, though, credit spread widening, that happens in the next six to nine months. Right. Bank, uh, you know, bank issues will will come to the fore. We'll see bankruptcies, we'll see restructuring, you're gonna see that in commercial real estate, all that's gonna occur. But the consumer probably, you know, powers the economy through to some growth mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, a negative growth, unless there are more job losses than we're expecting. Right, right, right. But even then you would expect the government to flood the- I would expect the government to do that because it's an election year. Absolutely. Very good. Peter Krauss, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor podcast today. In closing, maybe you can tell our listeners how they can find out more about you, more about your firm, whether you're on the social media, and I will include all this in the, in the show notes so people can access it. Well, you can find out about Aperture Investors uh, by Googling Aperture and, and going on the website. It's quite descriptive of the products and the firm. And I am on social media, LinkedIn and Instagram and other places. So it's, it's not hard to find us. Okay. I will put those links in the show notes. And with that, we're done for today. Thank you all for listening. And thank you, Peter, for making himself available and for all Peter's people who reached out to me and uh, helped made it, make it possible. Greatly appreciated. Fascinating conversation. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you back here again next week. Speak then. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.